right, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Walnut Creek Church. We're glad that you've joined us. If you are new with us this morning, we want to extend a very special welcome to you. My name is Cole Myers. I serve as one of the pastors here uh, at Walnut Creek Church in Windsor Heights. And I want to start this morning by a fairly sobering question for us. Just by a show of hands, who here has been completely unaffected by the reality of death? No one. Not one hand went into the air. You know, the most important statistic in the world for us to consider is that 100% of people die. You and I would be included in that statistic. And that reality alone not to shape how we think about our lives. But the time between now and when each of us die is impacted by the reality of death in other people as well. I remember when my grandpa died. I remember uh, heading to his funeral. I was walking out of my grandma's house and, and I turned to my dad. I was, I was holding back tears and I just told my dad, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and he looked at me and he kind of shrugged and he said, well, it's just part of life, Cole. I mean, is that what death is? Is, is death just part of life? Is it something that all of us just kind of need to accept as fact and then just push down deep enough to where we don't really think about it so we can just get on with whatever time we have left ourselves? Or, or is death the single greatest problem that faces every single human being? And... Is there a solution to this problem? See, if death is the greatest problem that faces every human, but there is no solution, then our sanity demands that it's something that we simply accept, then push all the way down, push as far back as we can, just so that we can continue on with our lives. But... If there is a solution, then death becomes something that we can not only acknowledge, but we stand victoriously over. And praise God that we have a solution to this problem. And that solution is found in our passage this morning. We get to work through the solution to humanity's greatest problem this morning. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open up to Romans chapter 5. We're working through the book of Romans as a church. If you're new with us, we're working through Romans over the course of about two years. And so we're in Romans 5 this morning. It's in the New Testament. We're going to be starting in verse 12 of Romans 5. And here's what it says. It says, Therefore... Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. 
But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. If by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then... As through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a long passage that we have to tackle this morning. So what I'm going to ask you to do before we tackle that passage is spend a few minutes praying with those who you are around. Okay, this this passage, I would say, is fairly technical. And so we could ask for God's grace that we might understand it intellectually with our minds, okay? That that we would stay focused, we would stay engaged and track through Paul's argument here in this fairly technical text. But then also we can pray that not just our minds, but our hearts would be engaged with this text. That our hearts would be encouraged by the solution that God has provided us in Jesus Christ to our greatest problem, that being death. So if you are sitting next to someone, you don't know them, you haven't met them, step one, introduce yourself. And then step two, stick your heads together and lift this time up before the Lord. And if you do know one another, say hello, good morning, and then get right to praying. All right? Okay, so I'll step away, let you guys pray, and then I'll come back and pray for us, and we can get on with our passage. Go ahead.
Father in heaven, we want to thank you for gathering us here this morning that we might hear from you. God, we recognize that we don't deserve the gift of your presence with us. We don't deserve the gift of one another's presence. We acknowledge, Lord, that we, uh, yeah, we, are, we have sinned. We have strayed from you, God. But we thank you for the love that you have shown us in Christ. We thank you for your word and how you reveal yourself to us. And we ask for your grace this morning that we might understand it rightly, not just in our minds, but that our hearts would be encouraged and built up, that we would be moved by the reality of the gospel as we have it here in Romans 5. So we thank you for this time and commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you are... uh, following along and taking notes this morning, or you're just wanting a little roadmap to follow uh, for our time this morning, we've got three big points for us. First thing we're going to be looking at is the first Adam in the passage, the first Adam. Second point on our outline is going to be the last Adam. And then we will conclude by looking at the all-surpassing power of grace in our passage. And so beginning with the first Adam, we want to understand what this passage teaches us about the first Adam. And there are three big things that we need to understand. The first is that Adam is the first man. He was the first man, right? Verse 12, it begins by saying, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that one man being Adam. And We understand that Adam is the first man. His name, Adam, it actually is the Hebrew word for man. And we read about the creation of this first man in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. It says, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the ground and water all the earth. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. So here's what matters most about this right here. What matters most is that there was a first man. There was a real, actual Adam, a real first person that God created. There are a number of things in the Bible that people can have differing ideas or opinions about, right? People can differ about what the Bible teaches about baptism, for example, or spiritual gifts, or the end times, or, or church offices, and they can hold those differing beliefs between one another, yet still hold true to what the Bible teaches about sin and salvation. But one thing you must hold true to, if you're going to maintain a, a true profession of the gospel, is you must hold to a true historical Adam. And we don't have time this morning to dive deep into that. If you are interested in hearing more about that, we did a series on the book of Genesis last year, and the first several sermons in the book of Genesis would address that, so you're welcome to go back and take a listen on our website. 
But the very first thing we need to understand is there was a true, historical, real-life Adam that God created from the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into. We hold true to that. The second thing we need to understand about Adam is that Adam functions as the federal head of all people. He's the federal head of all people. And here's why this matters. In the garden, God gave Adam a command. So he created Adam, and then he gave him a command. Some might say he made a covenant with Adam. And here's what God said. He said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from that tree, you will certainly die. So Adam was given this command by God, and he was given the ability to choose to either obey this command or disobey this command. And in Genesis 3, what happens is the serpent comes along, the serpent deceives Eve, the woman who God created from Adam, and the serpent convinced Eve that the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat wouldn't actually result in death, so she ate the fruit and then she gave some to her husband Adam, he ate it, and in that moment, the first man sinned, and in that moment, the federal head of all of humanity sinned. And what that means is in that moment, all of humanity sinned, including you and I. So, so how does this work? I admit uh, analogies are, are never perfect, especially mine. Uh, but this, this one I would say is no exception, okay? But just track with me. Just in an effort to be helpful, show of hands, who here is planning to watch the Super Bowl tonight? All right. Keep your hands up if you are a legit 49ers fan, okay? Like you cheer 49ers all day, all year, no matter the season. Two, three, okay. Good luck, you guys. Um, how about Chiefs fans? Legit Chiefs fans, not just tonight. Okay, a few more of you. How are you going to feel when your team loses? I'll tell you how you're going to feel, okay? Depending on how deep your fanship goes, you're going to feel like if your team loses, you lose, right? You're going to share in that loss. You're going to go to bed discouraged. You're going to analyze all the things that your team did wrong. And as you analyze what your team did wrong, you know what you're going to do? You're going to use pronouns like we and us. You're going to say things like, oh man, we should have run the ball more. Or why did we choose to go for it on fourth and eight at our own 35? Like that was the dumbest choice. You're going to use pronouns like we and us. You're going to identify yourself with your team. You're not going to say, oh, I'm so happy the other team won, right? Because their loss is your loss. How, do, how is that? Like, how does that even work? Because you know that you didn't actually lose, right? Like you didn't play the game. You, you sat on your couch in jeans and a sweatshirt eating pizza and little Smokies, like watching it 1,500 miles away. Like you weren't part of the game, but in a way you did lose because of your association with your team. We don't just have an association with Adam. Okay? The Bible describes us as being in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, just as in Adam all die. Okay, so verse 12 of our passage here says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, 
that man being Adam, and death through sin in this way. Death spread to all people. We all lose. We share in Adam's loss. We share in his sin. Death spread to all people because all sinned. Adam is our federal head. But notice the words that Paul uses. He says that sin entered the world through one man, Adam, right? That was the fall in Genesis 3. And when sin entered the world, death entered the world, and death spread to all people. Why? Because Adam sinned? No, because all sinned. So it's not like all die for this one man's sin. It says all die because all sinned. We have sinned, and the death that we die is a result of our own sin. And then Paul clarifies that, yeah, even, even the people who were alive before the law was given sinned. Okay, so look at verse 13. It says, in fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Okay, so you're like, this does not sound like a clarification, Right? In, in my mind, this sounds like a contradiction. He's saying sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. And then verse 14, it says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. How is this working? It, it sure sounds like sin was charged to a person's account before the law was given, if death reigned from Adam to Moses. Here's, here's how I might explain it. Sin entered the world immediately after Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. Right? The only person who had received a direct command from the Lord was Adam. But there was, as we know from Romans 2, a natural law written on the heart. Paul clarifies this in, in Romans 2, 14 through 15. He says, when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So because there is a natural law, then sin was, in my mind, charged to every person's account. And that payment for sin that charge for sin, it is death, which is why Paul says that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even, those, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. Okay, so that last part, the likeness of Adam's transgression, I, I think that's confirming of this because Adam's transgression was a direct violation against a specific Command For all who follow after Adam, there was no specific command given by God to violate until Moses came. Right? So people between Adam and Moses could not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression because there was no specific law to violate, but there was still the natural law to violate. And the reason that people violated the natural law is because when Adam sinned, all who follow would have been born with the sin nature. As a result, sin is charged to everyone's account and death reigns. Notice in verse 14, it, it says death reigned. It doesn't say death existed. It doesn't say people died. It says death 
reigned. Like death was king. Death had ultimate authority and power over the lives of people. And this death, it was as much a spiritual death as it was a physical death. God intended Adam and Eve and all who follow to live forever, both spiritually and physically. But sin had ushered in a death, both physically and spiritually. And we see this in Genesis 2, right? God warns Adam not to eat from the tree of knowledge and good and e- of good and evil. And he says, on that day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Adam eats from the tree. And on that day, what doesn't happen? <laughs> he doesn't die, at least physically. He dies spiritually. And this Spiritual death, it's demonstrated through a separation from the one who is the giver and sustainer of life, God himself. And so both physical death and spiritual death reign in Adam. And as our federal head, sin and death reigns in us. And if this is the end of the story, then like I said, we've got two options. We either, for the sake of our sanity and functionality, push this reality as far down as we possibly can, or we bring it to the surface. This reality of death, we we bring it to the surface. And you know what happens when we do that? We experience the deepest sense of longing that one could possibly feel for someone to come along and make it all go away. When we stare at death face to face, don't we just long for that reality to not be a reality? And Paul sees this and he knows it. And so he points us to the one and the only one who can satisfy that longing. So Adam is the first man. He is our federal head. But third, he is a type of the coming one. We see this at the end of verse 14. Paul says Adam, right? This, this first man is a type, an image It's pointing ahead to a more perfect Adam, a last and final Adam, a new and more perfect federal head. And as our new federal head, he will be an Adam that perfectly fulfills the requirements of the covenant. And this last Adam is the Lord Jesus. And so this is the second point on our outline, the last Adam. And and for the next several verses, what Paul is doing is he's highlighting exactly how The first Adam is a type of the coming one, the last Adam. And he does so through a number of contrasts. He begins by stating emphatically in verse 15 that the gift is not like the trespass. Praise God. The gift is something different. It's not like the trespass because first and foremost and most foundationally, it is a gift. Right? The trespass was earned or the trespass, rather, it earned all that came with it, right? Death and judgment and condemnation. That is the price of the trespass. All that comes with the gift 
is not earned. It can't be worked for. It is a free gift. It can only be received by faith. That is how the gift is not like the trespass. But as we keep reading, then Paul provides four notable contrasts between the trespass and the gift. He does this over the next several verses. And the reason he does this, I believe it is to elevate the gift and the gift giver. It is to hold high this incredible gift that we have in Christ. He's holding high the solution that Christ provides to our greatest problem. Right? This passage is not primarily about Adam. It's not primarily about original sin. It's not primarily about death. It is primarily about the gift that we have received in Christ. And so the first way this gift is not like the trespass, again, we see in verse 15, in the trespass, many died. In the gift, there is an overflow of grace to many. Okay, take a look at verse 15. The gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, How much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? Okay, so spiritual death is inescapable for Adam's descendants. Right? In Adam, we we wear the the jersey of the losing team. That's what's happening. But because Christ is the new and perfect Adam, then Paul says, How much more? How much more will the grace of God, God's unmerited favor on his people, and the gift of eternal life in a restored relationship with our creator overflow to the many who are in Christ? Here it's the the many who have died are all those who are in Adam. It's every human that was born physically of Adam's seed. Okay, this is you and me and everyone else except for the Lord Jesus. That's the many there. The grace that overflows to the many overflows to those who are in Christ, everyone who has been born again spiritually. It is every person who has by faith received this gift. That's how we receive this gift of grace that is in Christ. It is to those who have been born again. So this is the first way the gift is not like the trespass. How else is the gift not like the trespass? Look at verse 16. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. So the trespass, it it results in judgment and condemnation. Adam's sin brings judgment and condemnation. The gift brings justification. We've worked through judgment, Romans 2, Paul explains judgment and what that is. Here he's more clear about what this judgment actually is and that it is condemnation. It's the first time Paul uses this word in Romans, condemnation. It's a declaration of guilt. Adam's trespass has brought upon us our condemnation because in Adam we all sinned. But the gift reverses the declaration of guilt. The the gift of Christ is a declaration of innocence. In Christ, we're declared righteous before God, and this justification, that's a gift. We don't earn it. 
Verse 17, we see the third way the gift is not like the trespass. He says this, if by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So in the trespass, death reigns. Death holds power. Death is authoritative. In what ways? Okay, besides the fact that death is the inevitable outcome of every human life, here's what I was thinking about. A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to teach at our Converge ministry, and I taught on the uh, concept of work and a biblical work ethic and what the Bible teaches about work. And it, or if you're part of our Unite ministry, I know you, you dove into this topic of work as well with Pastor Tim, right? I see some heads nodding. And both of us gave this definition of work. We said that work is any intentional act that promotes life and order in the world. So I've, I've just been thinking about that definition, and I was working through this passage this week, and I thought, man, that definition is so optimistic. <laughs> it's like a positive definition. Because another way to, to define work would be work is any intentional act to fight against death and chaos in the world. Rather than to promote life and order, work is fighting against death and chaos. Isn't that what we're doing when we work? I, I, imagine a world where no one works. I mean, just let's take one day. One day of no work. Is it the same? Does it just, is it just neutral? Like, what happens if there's no work, no transportation, no construction, no repairs, no law enforcement, no medical staff, no education, no EMTs, no security guards? Like, like what happens? How quickly, how quickly does the world descend into complete and utter chaos with just one day of no work? How many lives in the world would be lost with just one day of no one working. See, I think in a lot of ways, our existence is an unrelenting fight against the natural drift of humanity towards death and destruction. Everything we do, even, even the little things, like why do you eat broccoli? Why do you wear a seatbelt? Why do you go to the gym? It, it just prolongs life. It pushes off, it holds off the arrival of death in many cases. Without the gospel, our life, it just becomes an effort to do all that we can to prolong our lives and hold off death as long as possible. That's what happens without the gospel. Do you see? That's, that's how death reigns. That's how it's authoritative. It dictates everything that we do. Death Reigns, but who reigns in the gift? The people of God. And how do they reign? Look at the passage. They reign in life. God's people are victorious over death. If you are in Christ, you hold the power over death. Death doesn't hold the power over you. 
You're no longer in Adam. You are in the one who conquered death by rising from the dead on the third day. We can look at this passage again in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 21. It says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all who are in Christ will be made alive. And so we see these three ways where the trespass is not like the gift. And then we get to verses 18 and 19. You know what Paul's doing in verse 18? He's just repeating exactly what he's already stated. It's it's like he's just trying to drill into our minds as much as he possibly can that the gift is not like the trespass. Look at verse 18. "As As through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Paul is saying, did you hear me? Right? Do you get it yet? The trespass has been overcome by the gift. The gift triumphs over the trespass. It is bigger. It is stronger. It is more powerful. It wins. And for those who are in Christ, that gift is theirs. Amen. But even in this repetition, I think there's something else that's clarified here. See in verse 19. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Here, what Paul's doing is he's explaining exactly how Adam is a type of the coming one, how Adam points to Christ. And what it comes down to, very simply, is a matter of obedience. Condemnation came through one act of disobedience. The gift came through one righteous act, through one man's obedience. So God made a covenant with Adam. Back in Genesis, he told him not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, otherwise he would die. This implies that if he obeyed, if he stayed away from the, knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would what? He would live, Right? That's the implication. And so we have to ask this question. What compelled Adam to disobey? He knew it would result in death. And he knew if he stayed away from it, he would live. What was the source of his temptation that caused him to stumble into death for himself and for all of humanity after him? Genesis 3, the serpent comes along. He's speaking. He says, in fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam had a desire to be like God. He desired equality with God. Couldn't Adam see that he already was like God? Like Adam was created in the image of God. He was God's very first and very good creation. It wasn't enough for Adam to be in the image of God. Adam wanted the authority to determine what was good and right for him. He wanted to know good and evil like God. He wanted equality, but this equality was not his to have. And so through this one man's disobedience, 
the many, you and I, were made sinners. But we contrast this with Christ, who Paul explains in Philippians 2, he says, existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of his father while Adam disobeyed. Through this man's perfect obedience, the many now have been made righteous. For those who are in Christ, his obedience has become your obedience. His righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, it has become your righteousness as the new and perfect federal head over his body, when Jesus obeyed by going to the cross, by enduring death, so did we. His crucifixion, in a sense, has become our crucifixion. Our sin has been paid for in Christ. And then we read in, verse, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, right, that his resurrection has also become our resurrection. We will be raised to new life with him. So in the first Adam, this first Adam was disobedient to the covenant of God. So God instituted a new covenant, a new Adam, a new federal head to conquer death once and for all by the, for those who put their faith and trust in Christ. The gift is not like the trespass. The gift conquers the trespass. And then Paul closes with, this, with the implications of this. And he does so by highlighting this third point on our outline, the all-surpassing surpa- all power of grace. Take a look at verse 20 of our passage. It says, the law came along to multiply the trespass. But where sin multiplied, Grace multiplied even more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, this is the point that Paul has been building towards. Paul writes, the law came along, right? This happened with Moses. There was no law until Moses. The law came along. So no longer is there just this generic sense of right and wrong to inform our morality. Instead, God has given his people, including you and I, very clear, very unambiguous instructions for what he expects for our lives. But it says that this law, this clear law, it has come along to multiply the trespass. Doesn't it come to make things better? It didn't come to fix the trespass. It came to multiply the trespass. Here's how we think about it. You can do a Google search for really bizarre laws, okay? Knock yourself out. You could spend hours just reading about all the crazy laws that are out there. Here's one example. In Alaska, it's illegal to tether your dog to the roof of your car, okay? Now, here's the question we need to wrestle with. Before that was actually a law written down in Alaska, was it right to tie your dog to the roof of your car? Probably not, right? But when the law passed, 
all the people that were tying their dog to the roof of the car were clearly in violation of that law now, right? But what's more, I would imagine that there's people that wouldn't have thought about tying their dog to the roof of the car until they read the law. And all of a sudden, they're very curious about how that might go, right? So in that way, the law multiplied the trespass. Another way you can think about it, again, my analogies, I understand they're not perfect, right? But just, I'll give you a rule right now. Here's a rule. Whatever you do, do not daydream about taking a nap on a tropical beach in a hammock. 85 degrees, light breeze, sun kind of beating down on your face, occasional call of a seabird in the distance. Don't dream about that. You're all rule breakers. Right? Again, not a perfect example, but that law, that rule that I just gave you, just coming into existence, it awakened a realization of many of you that you were actually now in violation of the law. And that awareness, it wasn't sufficient to make you stop. Right? It just wasn't enough. When I said don't do it, it wasn't enough to make you stop. So God's law, you know what it says? It says don't lust in your heart. And we read that and all of a sudden we're just awakened to the existence of lust in our own hearts. God's law, it says don't hate. All of a sudden we're just awakened to the existence of hate in our hearts. God's law, it says don't be proud, don't be boastful. And we think, I can't help it, it's just in there. Do you see how the law is insufficient to remove the sin? It just exposes the sin, and in doing so, it makes things worse. It doesn't curb sin. It doesn't reduce the effects of sin. It came to multiply the sin. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. You know that phrase, grace multiplied even more? In in Greek, it's just two words. Okay, the first word is charis, which is grace. And the second word is really long, and it sounds like this, huper per asuo. And that word, that, this one Greek word, do you know what that means? It means something like superabound, like an overflow, an, an excessive amount, more than one could possibly imagine. I don't, I don't know why Ready Whip comes to my mind, but I just, I picture my kids sitting around for dessert after Christmas, and they've got a pie on their plate, and then both grandparents both have a can of Ready Whip in both hands, and they're like, who wants Ready Whip? And they just empty the Ready Whip all over the dessert. It's like way more than you could possibly imagine. It's too much. It's excessive. It's an overflow. It's abundant. Paul says, this is how we think about the grace of God. It's too much. And in case you missed it, this isn't the first Time. It's not the second time. It's the third time Paul refers to the grace of God in this passage in this way. Verse 15, he says, The gift is not like the trespass. For if the one man's trespass, the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, there's the word, overflowed to the many. Verse 17, If by one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace 
and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Where sin multiplies, where sin abounds, where sin prevails, grace multiplies, grace abounds, grace prevails, but more so to an excessive degree. Understand what this means. There is no sin that goes so deep that God's grace does not go deeper. How deep does your sin go? God's grace goes deeper. How how deep? How deep have you fallen into the pit of lust? How deep have you fallen into the pit of pride and criticism and self-righteousness? How deep have you fallen into the pit of anger or the pit of worry or anxiety? How deep have you fallen into the pit of covetousness, jealousy, comparison, or the pit of apathy? How deep have you fallen into the pit of a coldness towards the things of God? There is no pit so deep that God's grace cannot fill that pit and lift you out of it. To believe that your sin exceeds the grace of God is to have an inexcusably low view of God. There is no sin so deep that God's grace does not go deeper. There is no sin so big that God's grace cannot cover. And his grace comes to us as we receive the gift that we have in Jesus Christ. You know what God's grace is? God's God's grace is a forgiving grace. It's it's grace in Jesus Christ that you have been forgiven. You are justified. Your sin is no longer counted against you. You don't stand before God and have to give an account for your sin. Instead, you just point to Christ and say, God, it was forgiven. Jesus paid for my sin. It's his grace. right? If you are in Christ, nothing you have done Nothing you are doing, nothing you will do will ever be counted against you. That is the grace of God. It's a forgiving grace. God's grace is a restoring grace. Not only are you forgiven, but your relationship with God. We worked through this last week. Your relationship with God, it has been restored. The grace of God has reconciled you back to himself, and you are now able to experience the joy of this relationship that God has created you for. God's grace is a restoring grace. God's grace is a sanctifying grace. Do you know God's discipline is a grace to you? God disciplines you because of his grace, and his grace enables you to grow out of your sin and into righteousness, not just from a positional standpoint before the Lord, but from a very practical standpoint. His grace enables our obedience. Without his grace, we don't have the ability to obey. His grace allows us to walk in obedience to him. God's grace is an empowering grace. See, when we come to terms with the depth of our sin and the greater depth of God's grace, 
and we realize the free gift that we have in Christ, his grace, it becomes fuel for ministry. It becomes fuel for our lives. We, we have a desperation then for others to know this grace. It, it moves us to live and to speak in such a way as to invite others into this grace in which we stand. And finally, God's grace is an eternally reigning grace. Paul closes his chapter and he says, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This means that God's grace is not momentary. It's not temporary. It it doesn't just meet us in the moments of our greatest need. It continues forever. God's grace, it is the eternal solution to our greatest problem. God's grace will triumph over sin and death. And as we receive this gift of God's grace in Christ, so will we. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the grace that you've shown us in Christ. We thank you, God. We praise your name that no longer must we stand in fear of death. Death is no longer our greatest problem because we have life in Christ. We know that your grace and your grace alone enables us to stand in joy, to look forward to an eternity with you. God, we confess our sin. We confess, God, that all, every single one of us, born in the likeness of Adam, we have sinned. We have strayed, God. We, we've done more than just make a mistake here or, here or there. Our very nature is one of rebellion towards you. God, we in our hearts have removed you off your rightful throne. We've placed ourselves there. God, we've craved equality with you in a way that we never should. And the punishment that we deserve, the consequence we deserve, yes, it is an eternity separated from you in hell forever. But your grace has rescued us. It has brought us back into relationship with you. It has forgiven us the guilt of our sin. Praise your name, God, that in Jesus we now have forgiveness. This gift of grace that we don't deserve is from you, and we are eternally grateful for it. God, we pray that this grace would compel our lives, it would fuel our lives, and it would be what marks this church.